By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Visit DairyLaneDental.com. Welcome to Behind the Drive Shortcuts, Volume 68. My name is Douglas McLean. Every morning, James Grant rises at 3 a.m. to bake bread at the Ox Tongue Bakery for the Dwight Market. His friend and mentor, Jeffrey Hamlin, states, The baker's life has always been one of work and reward. What begins as tangible, the work has often over the years transformed into something less tangible because the rewards of baking are not just financial. The rewards can take the form of community service, personal growth, and often social and spiritual development. I had the great honor to speak to Dr. James Grant in August of 2020. Not only is he a world-class baker, he's also a highly renowned symphonic composer. He specializes in concert music for orchestras, choruses, chambers, ensembles, and recitalists. His music can be found on his SoundCloud account, James Grant Music. um, it, it's one of the it's one of these situations where it's difficult to art, to put into words, right. and you're doing the right thing by going on YouTube and and watching videos, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, because uh, essentially um, the the bulk rise is very important, of course. And what uh, where I left off in my description that that tub of dough then goes into the refrigerator overnight, right? So it ferments overnight. Right, um, and and then it gets it gets scaled into right. uh, six hundred seventy five gram clumps. Yeah, um, and then then that's that's where the sort of the craft of uh, pre shaping and shaping a loaf comes into play, and it's it's that and and the following the final proof of that bread loaf in its own basket. That is what requires time and patience to make sure that that, that it has risen enough that um, that it's ready to go into the baking chamber. So, and the oven has to be blistering hot. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I'll, I'll give you a background of my... So I made my living making salami. So... Uh, right on, really? So I did that for over 20 years. And it's it's a lot of the similar things, you know. You're still you're extracting proteins and things like that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. It took yeah, but I I uh, I had to go all over the world to uh, I had to go. I spent time in Italy and Germany, and Italy was the real guy. And these guys, uh, they never really took me too seriously, right? Because I was from I was from Toronto, so that and I wasn't Italian, so. Uh, but I did learn some amazing secrets, right? So yeah, so I I appreciate your uh, your craft and workmanship. But bread is something different. I mean, bread is essential. I mean, it's different than salami, right? So in in Europe, in Europe, salami is almost like fine wine. They like like the really good salamis, not the stuff you get here in the grocery stores, but the, it's like fine wine to them, right? So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you you must have oh, to get up pretty that's early. That's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I I really loved it, and uh, um, I didn't come from that background, so um, and it sure treated me well. I mean, it did. It, it gave me a life that I would not have expected. You know, um, 
I think in school they expected me to be a teacher or some silly thing like that, right? But I I rebelled pretty young and went into uh, sort of my own world. But anyway, yeah, so it was very similar in a way. Just so cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, salami has a very interesting, you know, the, the those first couple of days where you're kind of letting the uh, lactic starter acids kind of cultivate in the meat, right? Because it, it has to somehow trick the, because uh, the meat is basically decaying, you have to trick it so that it starts to grow. The microorganisms grow and block out all the bacteria, right, from the decay. It's, it's yeah. You know, that humans discovered such a thing is pretty amazing to me. That's a, I know. That's what always blows my mind. But we yeah, were making, it's fascinating. We were making, at one point, like we were making 24,000 kilos a day of product. We had a, oh my God. a huge <laughs> We had a huge Oh, my God. Yeah. Where, yeah. What, where was this? Where were you doing this? In Toronto? Yeah, in Scarborough. We had a 30,000 square foot plant in Scarborough. Holy smokes. Yeah. Friend, <laughs> a friend and I started it together, right? And uh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. But, <laughs> that's a lot of salami. That's a lot of salami. You would not, until you see it, you would not believe it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, but it's, it becomes. Um, you know, we use big blenders, 5,000 kilo blenders and things like that, right? So we could just make <laughs> big, big, big grinders that could take, you know, a block of frozen meat that was harder than cement and just grind it all up. It's pretty amazing stuff. <laughs> it's so, just mind-blowing. Yeah. You know, food food production sort of and the, the science and engineering behind it. Yeah. is is so mind-blowing and, and it ends up creating these tens and hundreds of thousands of individual portions that look look as though they were given great care by hand which right. in the end they are yeah you yeah. know it's just amazing to me so you That's must such have, a great story yeah so you must have to get up pretty early to uh like traditionally like bakers are up at two o'clock in the morning is that your life too as you're like, and then you work till four. Or five. Absolutely not. No, no. No, I, I sleep in till three thirty in the morning. Oh, and, <laughs> then go. So and then you, I then I go to the bakery. Yeah. So how do you find that? Do you uh, do you like those? I love it. Ones? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I do. Ever since my first job in a bakery in the late seventies, in. Um, Northampton, Massachusetts, it was. Uh, I got a job as a dishwasher. Right. And I had to, I had to show up at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And that was the first time I had ever had, had to get up that early, five or six days a week. Yeah. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And ever since that time, and you know, after I, I finished that baking stint, and then um, I went off and did my master's degree in music in Iowa, and then came back and did some more baking for a while, and then I went off and did my doctorate at Cornell, and then and then uh, taught in, in, at college for four years in the states, and then had something of an epiphany at a stoplight 
when I was I was coming up from I had just passed my four year review, and um, I realized I wasn't very I wasn't as happy as I wanted to be uh, in a teaching position. I love teaching. I'm a born a truly a, I believe I'm a born teacher, but uh, it was more. Um, that I wasn't having enough time to do my own art, my own music. Right. So I took a calculated crapshoot and I left my cushy teaching gig. And uh, from 1994, well, really until the present, uh, uh, I've been um, uh, self-employed as a composer. Right. And, uh, and now, of course, as a baker. <laughs> right. um, uh, but all during that time, I was still getting up early. I was still getting up around five. Right. Wow. So, so it's nothing new to me. I, I love the morning, the morning hours and right. especially seeing the moon. Right. Uh, at, in its, in its, in its waning stage. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, most people see it in its waxing stage right. as, as it becomes the full moon, but then they, then, then they don't see it because it begins, uh, uh, as it sets later and later, you have yeah. to be up early in the morning to right. really to see yeah. it. So, yeah, wow, that's yeah. very special. Yeah, and uh, um, yeah, we'll get. So I need to get my head wrapped around. So, did you start playing very young? Like, were you a piano? Did you start playing piano? Is that how you got? Well, I, um, yeah, actually, my, my first real um, music uh, interest was in singing. I was a, I was a choir boy um, f from uh, grade five through grade 12, actually. And um, so that's kind of what got my start. And then along the way, I studied piano and organ. And uh, uh, eventually um, found myself much more interested in composing music than in being a performer. Right. So uh, I don't consider myself a performer at all, though. I, you know, I've got conducting chops. I, I, I've conducted professional orchestras and chamber ensembles and choirs, but it's just not my thing. Right. You know, I, I, I prefer... I prefer being in the be, being the uh, architect rather than the builder. Let's put it that way. So, how do you learn um, as a singer? How do you learn notation and intonation and those things? How does that? How oh gosh! Well, I I should say that that as a singer, I'm I am not a singer. <laughs> I was back then for a few right. years as a choir boy, right. but that I've never, I've never considered myself to be a vocalist. Um, and it was, it wasn't through, through that, that I gained my present body of knowledge. Okay. It was actually through, um, having that, um, uh, evolve into studying piano yeah. and then eventually having that evolve into studying the craft of composition. Right. And that's something that I, I also teach music composition online. Right, I, I have a, a handful of Skype students. Right, I saw. And um, yeah, and that and that's uh, really fulfilling. And I I have colleagues, composer colleagues, I visit with regularly and chat about music, and it's wonderful. Yeah, well, we'll but, but uh, lots to talk about and 
from composition point of view. So uh, to catch that up. I'm just trying to get a sense of your journey somehow. I guess, if, for lack of a better word, um, what what's in where, yeah, yeah. where is Cornell? Where's Cornell? That's in New York, isn't it? Not Cornell University. Yes, it is. It's in Ithaca. All right. It's in Ithaca, New York. Yeah. Yeah. And even then that was, that was kind of a, that was, that was kind of a fluke because I, I had taken a break from my baking job right. that I had at the time, which was in Brattleboro, Vermont. <laughs> and uh, I, I went out to, I drove out to visit a friend who was doing his doctorate at Cornell in music composition. Right. And I met with his professor okay. uh, who, who looked at my music and, um, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, he basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse right. and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, invited me to join the doctoral program, even though I wasn't applying. <laughs> and so the following fall, I, I, uh, I ended up starting, starting the program there. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. Brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Visit DairyLaneDental.com. And and how long would you how long would you study there for? So that's towards a PhD, I guess, right? Yes. Yeah. In my case, the degree is a DMA, which is a Doctor of Musical Arts. Okay. I prefer to say doctor of mystical arts, but you know, um, so, um, uh, it's a four year program, um, and, uh, is, is quite rigorous academically as, as well as, um, uh, artistically, uh, oh. I did a lot of, a lot of composing, a lot of conducting. Right. Um, it was a, a, a stimulating and challenging time. So, um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite fascinating because I have, I have one friend that I grew up with who is a professor of music at, uh, or was, he's retired now, at uh, Western University. And, uh, but him and I met by playing rock and roll together. So he was an organ player, a B3 player, and we wrote all kinds of rock and roll. All right. But uh, it was quite interesting, right? Like his grasp of prog chord progressions, particularly where, you know, uh, it was pretty advanced. He used he used some pretty interesting uh, chord progressions. But he went on to write quite a bit. So, uh, like like he he yeah. started writing, I guess, symphonies, right? So, uh, and that's where I get lost because I don't really understand that music it doesn't ring in my heart very well so uh i have a little bit of a challenge with it but i'm going to try to get to know your work as well as i totally I you know i totally uh, yeah i to i totally get that i mean uh, i was i was kind of an outlier a bit a bit of a maverick when i went off to do my doctorate because my my um my uh, greatest inspirations have been uh, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. of Steely Dan, yeah. and uh, and and also uh, the person I believe who who hands down is is the best songwriter, and that's Joni Mitchell. Right, exactly. Um, 
you know, I, I just, um, I, I venerate them in the same way that I venerate Stravinsky. Right. And uh, have learned just as much from them. And when I was teaching composition in college, often I'd bring in Steely Dan records and, and play them, especially to give examples of syncopation. Right. And, yeah. and chord progressions and, and uh, you know, the t just totally tasty backup lines yeah. and, and uh, inner voicings and brass charts and, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and I, I, sh I should say that, you know what, I'm, I'm someone who's always, I've always listened to jazz as my, it's sort of the soundtrack to my life. Right. Even, even though my training, even though my training is in, uh, essentially in composing what's loosely referred to as classical music. Um, a better term is concert music these days. Um, and I, I have written lots of music for orchestras and orchestras and choruses and, and various chamber ensembles and individual instruments and recital music and that sort of thing. Um, and it's it's all you know it's all this it's all just one big piece of music and that we're that we're all involved in and um, uh, with just different different colors and textures and shapes and sizes and lengths of time and different narratives that are playing. Well, I mean, uh, are you familiar with Jacob Collier? You know Jacob Collier? Not yet. No, no, I don't know. Okay. I'll have to check okay. it out. And how about Snarky Puppy? Snarky Puppy. Snark, I know. Snarky Puppy, the jazz group? I know them very well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Jacob Collier made a recording with Snarky Puppy that's just going to part your hair down the middle. Okay. Oh. It's, uh, it's on YouTube. And, okay. um, yeah, it, I'll send you the link. It's just okay. yeah. staggeringly brilliant piece of music. Well, they, they worked, uh, some of them worked with David Crosby a couple of years ago. So, uh, and produced their... Quite, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's been on a real... He, as he comes close to 80, he's been recording albums one after another. And he's been working with some pretty amazing... Uh, some pretty amazing uh, backup uh, vocalists and uh, performers, right? But, I mean, he doesn't play... Yeah. He uses these wild tunings that you couldn't even, you know, you wouldn't have a clue uh, what they are, right? I mean, he learned all his stuff from Michael Hedges. Do you know Michael Hedges at all? Have you ever heard of him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Crosby, oh, yeah. Crosby was really influenced by Michael Hedges, right? And they, in turn, influenced Joni Mitchell, although... Uh, she, oh, oh, big time. Uh, although she... She had some, I don't know what, she had some genius. She could just hear the, the tuning she wanted to capture the music, right? So, so remarkable, such a remarkable story. You know, Doug, to, to this day, to this day, my absolute top favorite album is Joni Mitchell's first album from 1968. Oh, really? Which was a song to... Yeah, a song to a seagull is what right, it was called. Yeah. It was reissued as Joni Mitchell. Right. Yeah. And they're it it, it they are the best songs imaginable, and the the open the open tunings and what she was able to get with those open tunings was this 
profound texture of inner voices, right. the, the accompanying inner lines. Right. That and then with her extraordinary sense of melody and right. construction of melody, right. not to mention the lyrics. Right. Jeez. Yeah, yeah no, I. Mind blowing. I, David, David uh, um, I think Graham, either Graham Nash or David Crosby produced David, that. David Crosby produced the first one, uh, the, yeah. first, the first album, yeah, and I think they did it in Florida or something. And uh, yeah, he talks quite a bit about her. I'm, I'm, I've always been deeply in love with his music for some reason. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. He's a real rascal. Uh, he, he really, yeah, he is a rascal. He <laughs> Used up a lot of his incredible gift, you know, wasted a lot of his time. But anyway, he's trying to make up for it now, I guess, in a way. But Yeah. Yeah, so I guess the thing is I'm going to have to try to figure out how to communicate what uh, in some sort of uh, uh, basic terms, what composition implies. Like, so... First of all, I mean, the very first thing that I would need to ask you is why didn't you go to the movies? Like, if you have these skills, why didn't you go into the uh, writing movie scores? Or uh, you- uh, basically, I wasn't interested in it. Back, you know, we're, we're, t- we're talking a long time ago, right? And, yeah, okay. um, uh, it, the, I, don't, I wasn't much of a moviegoer anyway, really. Um, but I, I was much more interested in um how to put this composing it's a bit it's a bit like solving a riddle right um where um you know when i when i teach as i say you know anybody can come up with a good musical idea but not everyone knows how to develop a good musical idea so it's a lot like developing. Uh, it's a lot like framing an argument. That it, it's a narrative, yeah. And the narrative has to make sense from moment to moment to moment. Right. Otherwise, um, otherwise you lose the interest of the players and the listeners. <laughs> uh, so, the, from my perspective as a composer, my my goal is to take the is to escort the listener right. from, from, from the silence that precedes the piece of music into the silence that follows the end of the piece of music. Right. 